If your student is going to live on campus, they will need twin extra long sheets. The first thing people get wrong. The first thing people get freaked out about. The majority of students who enroll in college don't graduate in four years. Is my kid going to make friends? Are they going to fit in? Are they going to find their people at college? Are they going to fail a class? Between Beth and I, we have worked in higher education for 50 years. We really think that there's some opportunity for some great dialogue. From the Pod 617 studios in Westwood, Massachusetts, it's Twin XL. Now here's your hosts, Laura DeVoe and Beth Grampetro. You know, we've talked before about how long we've been in higher education and working. And, um, you know, I think we try to have some lighthearted conversations in this show and we don't want to scare parents. But there's one area that um, over my 30 years working in higher ed, I've seen a lot of change in um, uh, mostly for the better, um, which is uh, responding to campus sexual assault and sexual misconduct. And, um, you know, as with anything in life, I think you have to change and you become more aware and you become more um, understanding of what the actual issues are. And when I first started working in student affairs um, in the late 80s, um, the policy at the university I was working at um, was that if a student reported that they were raped, which is the only term we used at the time, mm-hmm. um, as we would have to call their parents. Mm. And I know now how horrible that idea is as a concept. And um, as things have changed over time, uh, we've become more aware of why that's a bad idea. And today mm-hmm. we're going to talk about um, when probably the worst thing could happen on a campus um, to a child um, who you love and uh, why you as a parent need to kind of wrap your head around what are the services, what are the opportunities, and what might be your um, response to something like this. So um, welcome to the Twin XL pod. Um, I am Laura DeVoe. And I'm Beth Grampetro. And uh, today's comment, today's topic is around uh, sexual misconduct policies and consent. Um, and most campuses refer to this as their Title IX policy. And, you know, I, when, you, when we were talking and preparing for this episode and you talked about how things used to be handled and that one example of like, well, we just called parents without the student's consent, without asking them if they wanted that. And we, we were kind of throwing around the, the idea of when you know better, you do better. Yeah. And that's certainly <laughs> what this is now. It makes me think uh, I have a very young child and, you know, um, there are people now who like lose their minds over the fact that kids these days are in some kind of car seat until they're like 12. Yeah. <laughs> that's ridiculous. I like did somersaults around the back seat, and I'm still alive. Right. And my answer is always, well, we, we know better now, so we do better. Yeah. Um, and it's the same thing of like, it, no, this is not an indictment necessarily mm-hmm. of like mm-hmm. back in the eighties when you did things a certain way that you were being malicious or bad, you just didn't know. Right. It just, it just wasn't the way yeah. um, the problems existed yeah, absolutely. Um, but we didn't have the cultural um, sort of fluency with the issue and we were not having the conversation that we're having now. Um, and absolutely, there are people who are angry it took this long. Yeah. And they have a right to be. Yes. Um, but I think, yeah, it's a no better, do better situation. Yeah. And um, we're going to start actually by talking a little bit about why this is relevant and important mm-hmm. on campus and sort of what why it is a conversation now. Yes. Like what 
what relevant to college campuses exactly has made this such a, a hot topic in recent years. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I want to roll back and do uh, like back when the Title IX started. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so back in the 70s, um, in 1972, Title IX became law, um, making it unlawful for federally funded educational institutions from discriminating against students or employees based on sex. Um, and a lot of us know Title IX because we think about sports. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I was a kid, um, all of a sudden after Title IX, and I'm old enough to remember this, is that all of a sudden it wasn't just softball anymore. It was soccer and, um, you know, track and all kinds of things that were being added to the cadre of things that little girls could participate in. And, um, you know, it was really focused on sport. But then um, back uh, over the course of a period of time, and as more and more issues came up around sexual assault on college campuses and the I'm going to say it, the the lousy response that many institutions had to these issues. Um, I myself was told by a former um, employer to tell a victim of a sexual assault that she should leave school because people thought she was promiscuous and the way she dressed and the way that she acted. Um, and I... I'm going to be very honest about that. I I left that institution because of that conversation because I could not work at an institution that asked me to do that. Um, I'm not saying that to make myself look like a better person or to be some kind of you know champion. I just could not put my name on an institution that stood for that. Um, but that wasn't the only institution out there doing that at the time. And um, back in 2011, um, the Office of Civil Rights sent out a Dear Colleague letter. And this is actually what the, any letter OCR sends out is called a Dear Colleague letter. Yes, but now, because this one was so important, if you talk to anyone in the field of right. higher education, especially higher ed law, and this stuff, and say the Dear Colleague letter, it's shorthand, everyone knows you're talking about the, this one the, from 2011. Yes, and it said, okay, you guys are not doing a good job. <laughs> okay. We have given you warning upon warning upon warning, guidelines upon guidelines upon guidelines, and you're not planning, you're not playing along, so we are going to now force your hand. And um, the letter specified that Title IX also covered sexual harassment, sexual violence, and that sexual assault, sexual violence, sexual harassment were uh, gender-based discrimination and that we need to do better by students who are um, reporting these issues on campus. So that's where all of this kind of got started. And the reason that um, sexual violence, uh, sexual harassment, any of stalking, any of those can be considered gender-based harassment and discrimination is that... Let's take as an example, if you, any of you listeners out there were the victim of one of these things, Mm -hmm. um, if someone else on your campus was stalking you or if they assaulted you and then you had to attend class with that person or you had to go to, you know, they lived in the same residence hall as you and you had to see them in the hallway. You had to eat dinner in the same dining hall with them. Yeah. Would you, or would you maybe stop going to class? Would you maybe not? Would you, would you change your day? specifically to avoid this person and that becomes you know there's a there's an environment being created for you as the survivor that you can't just live your life anymore Mm -hmm. um and it is because while this is there are exceptions to this the majority of assaults are committed by men and the majority of victims are women it is a gender-based issue when you can't live your life because something happened to you based primarily on your gender correct and so 
when these guidelines were put into place, um, institutions had to get very specific about their policy, about how the process would work, um, should a uh, issue be reported to the proper, proper authorities on campus, which we'll talk about who those authorities are. Um, and then it also said that in addition to you having to have proper processes and proper ways to manage these issues and um, and that area of this, you also had to start to address your culture. And that was a big part of this, is that institutions were now being held to a standard of what are you doing about creating a safer culture on campus and trying to uh, minimize, if not get rid of, rape culture on your campus. Um, and that's like an important component of this that I think sometimes parents don't really understand is that it's not just about the process of reporting, but it's also about how we're trying to educate students on campus to make them aware of what we should be doing. And I think that sometimes parents run headlong into this, into orientation, where either they or their child or both are going through some sessions on things like consent. And consent is definitely something that some parents are very confused about. Um, and I've had parents that after going through consent uh, orientation programs have actually come to me um, in tears. Um, a father came to me at one point um, saying, you know what, I really, I, I need to talk this through because I think I did something bad when I was in college. And that was very, very uh, that was a moment for me that really shook me up because it shook me up because I think sometimes when we're trying to work with these kids and their parents, parents are thinking about themselves and what they did, not only what they may have experienced from a being victim standpoint, but what they may have experienced if they were a member of a community at their college where this type of behavior, where this rape culture behavior was normal and they at the time didn't realize it was a bad thing. Mm -hmm. And I think um, before we take a little break, I'm going to throw some stats at you because that's what I do. Um, <laughs> but loves a stat. I, we've talked a lot sort of anecdotally about why this is important, but just to kind of give you the picture of what's going on. Um, so first, first couple stats are from um, an organization called the National Sexual Violence Resource Center. Um, According to their stats, about a quarter of college women and 15% of college men are victims of forced sex at some point in their time in college. Um, in 2002, there was a study, and this actually I'm going to talk about later. It's the Lee Sackin Miller study. It's like the mm -hmm. study yeah. of sex, sexual offenders on college campuses. Um, revealed that 63% of men at one university who self-reported acts qualifying as rape. So they were asked questions. And of course the questionnaire isn't like, Hey, have you ever raped someone? But it asked questions like, have you ever coerced someone into having sex with you? Have you ever like held them down physically? Done all these things um, that they had committed. Um, they admitted to doing it over and over again. They admitted to repeat rapes. And that's going to be important later um, when we talk a little bit about talking with your student about these things. Um, and that, 27% of college women have experienced some form of unwanted sexual contact. So groping, everything from that to actual rape. And then from RAIN, which is the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, another organization you may be familiar with. And this is an important stat. 21% of transgender, genderqueer, and nonconforming college students have been sexually assaulted. Um, 
those communities, so folks who identify as non-binary or who are transgender, um, and also just those in the LGBTQ community, so gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, genderqueer, um, experience really high rates of sexual assault and harassment, which of course also fall under the idea of gender discrimination. Um, and that's an important thing, particularly if you have a student who identifies as part of any of those communities, um, they sadly may already be aware of that. Mm -hmm. um, yep. But something to be aware of for you as a parent. Um, and then it's a small number, but not a non-zero number. 4% of students have experienced stalking since, since entering college, which yep. is unfortunately an easy thing to do on a college campus. Um, it is not hard to figure out where someone is mm -hmm. and follow them around and make their life kind of creepy and miserable if that's your aim. So after the break, we are going to get into more of this. And uh, as those of you who have listened to our show before, um, our producer Dave is in the studio with us and we are going to, you know, encourage him to ask us some questions and be part of this conversation <laughs> as the parent of a young man what going to go to college. What are we doing? No. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I will use the similarly serious NPR style voice. That you okay. No, I look, <laughs> I seriously, I look forward to it. Let's Thank do you. it. All right. From the Pod 617 Studios in Westwood, Massachusetts, it's Are You Not Entertained? The was I and, and the am I entertained? Can I start that again? Sorry. <laughs> am I entertained? I did it again. <laughs> Dumbass! Are you entertained? Ah! All right, sorry, sorry. It's Ed Nathanson. I'm here to give you the podcast that I've always wanted to do. That's talking about movies. That's talking about music, sports, pop culture. That's talking to some of the best people in employer branding around the world. Are you not entertained? Can I start that again? So, uh, hope you enjoyed your break. <laughs> we are uh, we are here to talk now about how parents can coach their students around the issues of consent um, and sexual assault on campus, and what kind of conversations you should be having. And this actually starts really early in a kid's life. Mm -hmm. And um, those of us who grew up, you know, again before we knew better, right, and started doing better. How many times as a kid were you at a family gathering and you were made to hug a relative? Mm -hmm. Whether you might have said, No, I don't want to hug Uncle Biff or whatever, and your mom or dad was like, No, you go hug them. Right. Um, or how many times, you know, girls especially, you go home and say, Mom or dad, you know, this boy at school chases me on the playground and tries to hit me and tries to, oh, he does that because he, he likes, likes you. you. And so there's there's unfortunately been um, this telling you know telling our children especially our little girls but not not just them mm -hmm. like you don't own your body yep. you have to do what other people you have to do things that either make other people happy right. like hug that relative you don't want to hug or you have to like accept that you know oh well this boy will show he likes you by abusing you in some way yeah. so we unfortunately have set up um uh, entire generations of people not to feel like they have bodily autonomy which is sad but i know there are lots of people trying to to change that and Hopefully with your student who's going off to college, you you have renewed and sort of age appropriate for a teenager conversations about like, hey, you do own your body. Right. And there might be times as your parent that I have stepped in and said, you will do this thing for your health. You will get this shot, even though you don't like getting shots um, because it's good for your health. Mm -hmm. But like really reinforcing for them. And again, if you feel like you haven't been doing this, there's no time like the present, like let them dress the way they want. Let right. them let them like do the things they want to do. Let them get the haircut they want. Mm -hmm. Like whatever it is because it is their body. And, and it, that's an important thing to reinforce. And I want to, you know, I'm I'm 52 years old. I am of a specific generation. I'm a little bit older than Beth. I'm, all right, I'm older than Beth. And <laughs> there is 
I grew up at a time when in the 80s, girls, and I had this conversation with people, it was, look, if a boy wants to have sex with you, you can do this instead. Not say no, not to deflect, but instead, why don't you think about these other acts that would bring him pleasure. Just placate, that will him, just, placate like, him with a blowjob exa- and maybe exactly. he'll go away. Like yeah. give him a hand job <laughs> or give him a blowjob and that'll be the end of it. And you, you and that's not, that's not sex. And I'm like, now, knowing that that was infused in my head, back when it was infused in my head, that screws with you, mm-hmm. okay? And it screws with you as a person, it screws with you as a woman, but it also screws with you in terms of what do you see as your, your ability to take ownership of your environment. And so if you're a parent of my generation, which you may very well be, it is okay to be pissed off about what the world told you at the time. And I don't think it's appropriate for you to be angry at yourself. Mm -mm. Okay. And I think it's more appropriate for you to say, okay, how do I flip the narrative to be able to say, no, this is, this is not cool. Um, Just like, you know, for years we were told that eggs were good for us and now we're being told they're bad. Okay. No, they're good again. They're good again. Okay. I can't keep track, (laughs) but, but is that there's things that are going to change over time and we need to understand that and we need to own how those things impacted us. And that, you know, now as a parent talking to your teenage child, um, about these same situations, I think it's going to be important for you to say, I made I made these presumptions at a point because I thought this was right, but mm-hmm. I need you to understand this is where we're at right now. Well, and, the, and I think it's easy for, we've talked already a little bit about how we've, you know, dealt with these issues on campuses where we've worked and we've had conversations with parents at orientation before. The parent conversations often fall into one of two categories. Mm -hmm. Well, kind of three, because then there's the middle group of parents that like they absorb the information. They know it's, it's a big deal. And, um, but they, they're sort of appreciative of the conversation, but then you've got the group that is the parents of young women who are terrified, understandably, Mm -hmm. and are, Oh gosh, like what's, what if this happens to my daughter, what do I do? And then you have the group of parents of sons who are, um, you know, afraid of, well, what, what if my son is wrongfully accused? What if he, what if he innocently does a thing that, um, he doesn't realize is okay Mm -hmm. and ends up in trouble. And I think, um, that second part is, it's a good example of how like the sexism around this stuff doesn't just hurt the women. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the, the problem with it for men, um, is that, it doesn't think much of men no. <laughs> to say that they're just like showing up on campus, like thinking with their, with they their, their schlong. with their yeah. junk and being <laughs> like, I can't, I am not a human who can control myself because once I see like a flash of shoulder yeah. from a lady, yeah. I just lose control. And that's, that. it's terrible because that is not accurate about your sons. Right. <laughs> folks out there. Um, they, they can and do do better than that and should be expected to do better. And also like it's, just factually not true. Right. And I, I mentioned briefly the Lee Sack and Miller study. So Lee Sack and Miller are these, are these two guys mm-hmm. um, who did a study in the early aughts um, of folks at colleges. They asked these men to fill out these questionnaires. And again, it wasn't, have you ever raped anyone? But all these questions about their intera- intimate interactions with, with women. And they found this like small group of them that, that marked off all these things that constituted assault. And then they did interviews with them. And they found something like 92 or 95% of the men they interviewed had never done any of that stuff. Right. 
most of them never do. And then this small group, and as I mentioned before, 60 something percent of the small group had done it repeatedly. repeatedly. Yeah. So like, we're not worried so much that there are a bunch of college age men out there who like are just bumbling around and too dumb to realize when they, when the person they're with is consenting or not. Mm -hmm. That's not the common occurrence. No. Even though that's scary. And I get it. Like it's gotta be scary. And Dave, you may have something to say about this as a parent of, of young men. Like it's gotta be scary to think, what if my kid does some goofy thing and like it wrecks their life, but it's not as common as people fear. Well, right. And, uh, and, I wouldn't be counted among those who are going, oh, you know who I'm worried about? My son. He's going he's gonna to look at a girl the wrong way and then me too this and me too that and all of a sudden his life mm-hmm. is over. Um, no, but I, but I think it's good to talk about how things have changed and how, you know, I remember going to college and thinking, uh, I'm never going to, I mean, <laughs> I didn't wake up every morning and think I'm never going to rape anybody. It's just, that's just not the way I think, but, 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 but I never, but, but I knew uh, very clear to me what rules were, what consent was, but, um, admittedly you get it, the, the lines get a lot blurrier once you get and you're, you know, you're with a lot of people who are, um, you know, sort of asserting their sexuality for the real first time, who are mm-hmm. drinking a lot and doing drugs for the real first time. And people are getting silly and you feel liberated to do this and that. And so it gets into, it, it, it definitely gets into the situation where you might not realize that you're making somebody feel uncomfortable. And that's, so if I could, the, the, the example that comes to mind is not from college campus, but the one that I think is good to talk to in, in terms of the Me Too movement is the, are you guys familiar with the Aziz Ansari bit? Yeah. What happened with that comedian? So This is such a tricky one. Exactly. Yes. And that, that's, <laughs> so, so we're going to low it out a really hard one yeah. to discuss. Well, yeah. Okay. That is good. that okay? Yeah. That, that's, yeah. Yeah. That's why I bring it up. This particular article I happen to be looking at is uh, Vox.com. The original post was from someone on babe.net that mm-hmm. described a date gone awry with comedian Aziz Ansari, who's very charming and funny. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if she was kind of excited to go out with him because he was famous. Probably. She, yeah, probably. Right. So they went back to his place. It was just sort of a normal date. He repeated it. She says he repeatedly ignored her growing discomfort and the concerns she voiced and tried to pressure her into sex. At one point, she she says she voiced that she didn't want to feel forced. He said he seemed to understand until he suggested that they chill on the couch where he sat back and pointed to his penis and motioned for me to go down on him. She said she felt pressured to go along with it, not knowing how to extricate herself from the situation and eventually mm-hmm. left his apartment in tears and then later sort of explained that she came to now consider it a sexual assault. <clears throat> so, I mean, you talk about gray areas and, mm-hmm. you know, you picture Aziz Ansari, especially with that stupid smirk on his face, pointing <laughs> toward his crotch and you think uh, you're being a douche. But, but um, we, you know, we know there was a, there was a weird like uh, sort of backlash period, I want to say, in the 80s where some school came out with actual rules about you, know, you have to yes, ask yes. A, a person a specific body parts if you're allowed to touch. And we mm-hmm. know that's not realistic, right? No. no. So, I, I mean, I would never tell my son... Um, just be careful who you touch. You know, I said, use your common sense. Just make sure you're being respectful of the person you're with. But what do you guys think of the, the Aziz and Sorry thing? Let's so talk about I, that. Oh, it brings up a lot of thoughts. Yes. Um, <laughs> I think, first of all, actually, to, to, to address another thing you just said about the schools that, and it wasn't just in the 80s, there have been some more recently yes. that have been like, well, let's just have like a contract Correct. people have yes. to sign. There's also, um, there's a great uh, Dave Chappelle sketch 
about the love contract where he did a, he did this yes. satirical sketch about like getting someone to sign something before you have sex with them. It's very funny. Um, but it's poking fun at that for a reason because that's not a realistic thing and it's it wouldn't hold up. I mean, I'm not an attorney, but like, um, can you can you ask John Graff if the love contract would hold up? I bet I he will. knows. Yeah. Um, but like, it's it's like people will do anything to just avoid communicating, yeah. <laughs> which is what you need to do. And when I think of the Aziz Ansari thing, there's a couple things going on there. And I I admit, like, that's an uncomfortable story for a lot of people for a lot of reasons. Yep. Um, it's uncomfortable for women who are like, been there, been there. like yeah. I've been in that situation. Maybe it wasn't exactly the same because it wasn't a famous person or it wasn't whatever, mm-hmm. but like been in a situation where I wasn't sure what to call it. And, and it probably wasn't anything legal or illegal, but I did not feel okay. And I didn't feel in the moment, like I had the ability to say I wasn't okay I didn't have because, agency. because of yep. a power dynamic, a power differential. Okay. Yeah. And I think, and I don't know, I, I know there were also some questions about like the outlet in which that was published. I don't know. And I'm, and I don't want to speak too much on that specifically because I am not an expert on that situation and, and all that. But I think that there's, I think that there's sometimes situations where there's a pretty clear power differential, whether it's in that case, because this is a famous person in another case, like because one person is physically bigger and stronger than the Mm -hmm. other or even just like the situation that occurs and has happened to so many of us where you're finally like with that person that you have this huge crush on Mm -hmm. and you like want them to like you. Right. right? And you don't, and it's not that you want to have sex with them or do whatever it is they want to do, but your fear is what will this person do if I say no? And not a fear of like, they're physically going to attack me or I'm going to be hurt physically, but like, will this ruin my chances for later? Mm -hmm. Or, are they going to tell everyone on campus that I'm frigid? You know, just all yeah, these things. Yeah. And it sounds silly maybe to someone who's not in the moment. Right. Right. Cause, mm-hmm. cause like adult me looks back and goes, well, if you're worried that they're going to be mad that you don't want to have sex, do you want to date that Why person? Why do you like them in the first place? Sounds like an asshole, right? Like, but that's not the way you necessarily think as a, as no, a young, right. a young not, soul, as a 17 no. year old. Absolutely right? not yeah. the way college right. Beth thought. Ever. There is nothing right. more confusing and there's nothing more <laughs> invigorating and there's nothing more complicated than the first time you're actually with somebody who you have feelings for and that first kiss or for that first touch or for whatever. But then you have absolutely, you know, things are moving at a pace that you can't, you can't map it out. And so when something goes not as you had hoped in your brain, how you actually can can kind of nimbly move from one thing to the other. You can't tell someone, okay, this is going to happen, then that, then that, then that. That's not how it works. Well, and there's just the difference here, and this is not, I feel like we're going we're gonna to need another episode about <laughs> folks who are, who identify as trans or non-binary mm-hmm. or out, outside of the gender binary, yeah. because this is a very gender binary conversation we're having. Yes. Um, but f- for those that identify as as women and are are raised as women Mm -hmm. you are raised to not take up too much space and you are raised to be nice and you are raised not to be mean to other people and accommodating and that doesn't serve you well when you're in a situation where you you have every right to be like no dude get back off Mm -hmm. because your every fiber of your being has been trained from day one to be like don't make them mad Mm -hmm. don't like they're gonna think you're a bitch don't yep. be a bitch. So, and then for the men, you're not necessarily, although again, I think this is shifting. I think we're changing it. 
you're given these messages, even though you, you know, 95% of you, which is great, like don't act on it in this way and understand that it's not the right thing to do. But these messages are thrown at, at boys and men too of like, well, you just can't help it. It's just a thing you need. And when you see like any stimulus, you're just not able to even control yourself. And that's not fair to the men either. No. And so we're yeah. given these messages that really set up the power differential and make these situations really difficult to navigate. And I think, again, coming back to if and when these conversations start when the kids are young, the message that everyone needs to hear and hopefully carries into adulthood is like, if someone in the situation isn't having fun, you should stop. Yeah, that's the best message, right? <laughs> yeah, right. But my, and it happens that my son is a real rule follower, so he'll he'll be like drawing up the contract for like two hours before. <laughs> he'll be the one actually writing it and making like, sure that it's uh, copied and triplicate. Is every and all clause that. in but, here right, amenable to right, you? Just make right. sure that when he prints it, it's not right. in Comic Sans. Okay, so <laughs> or papyrus. Yeah. Right, but but uh, what I would say to him is, you know, to not be. Um, you know, if he were, or, or whatever, to students, to, to young men who are going into college scared of being accused of something and say, this sucks, you know, I thought I was going, I, you know, I mean, let's face it, kid, I'm going to college, I'm going to hook up, I'm going to hook up with a lot of girls, right? It's, this is going to suck if I can't do anything. I think you can tell them that the this has been a good thing. This has been a good awakening because, but but think of what it's really meant to address. It's meant to address people that, get in a situation that feels so un- extremely uncomfortable mm-hmm. that it affects them for a long time in in painful in a painful manner and if you if you have the good head on your shoulders I think you do you're not going to do that you're going right. to know you're going to know and right. so and and you know what it's 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 worth a little bit of hysteria out there for the some of these that they <laughs> say I, I mean right I mean that, that's a weird way of putting it but well go. and I think you know Hopefully, and this is a challenging and strange thing to think about when you're talking about your child, right? Good sex is sex where everyone's enjoying it. Yes. And like, (laughs) I don't want to think about, much like I don't want to think about my parents having sex. I don't Mm want to think about my kid one day doing it either. But (laughs) realistically, as people, I hope that they are and they're Mm -hmm. enjoying it. I, I, that's what Mm. we all, we all deserve that. And like, if a person in the situation, male, female, non-binary, whatever person you are, if any person in the situation is uncomfortable and having a bad time, why do you want to be there? Right. Like that's not any fun. Um, And it should matter to you that your partner or partners, because again, I don't know what you're up to. Have fun. Um, You do you. (laughs) You do you. Like, but it should matter to you that the people involved are, are enjoying themselves and are comfortable because that's the basis or part of the basis for a good experience. I love how she's being so inclusive. She keeps saying everyone in it. So it's not necessarily just two people. Like for example, if if you're the seventh person in, you might feel awkward. (laughs) You might be like, you know what? It's not, not for me. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry. No one's cleaning up. No one's cleaning (laughs) up. I'll admit I sometimes used to do that when in present, Presentations with students because that was like clearly a thing that most of them had not thought of. And when I would be like partner or partners, you'd see like the eyebrows in the room just shoot right up to hairlines all across the room. And it was just kind of fun. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) But anyway, um, so we need a little break, I think. Yeah. Um, We're going to talk about uh, what are your campus resources after the break. Hi, everybody. I'm Chamita Perel. Let me take a minute to tell you about the Boston Podcast Network. How would you like your own podcast? The Boston Podcast Network can produce one for you. Whether you're a lawyer, financial advisor, business owner, or really any kind of professional, you should have your voice heard through this exciting new medium. A good podcast is more powerful than traditional advertising. 
If a prospective client hears your podcast through their earbuds, you're already in their head. Literally, pod617.com will help you deliver a message and build relationships. Clients and centers of influence will delight in being a guest on your show. Go to pod617.com to start planning. And in the meantime, listen to the great shows they've already produced. The Irreverent Bitchless Bride Podcast. The hilarious show known as Shawshanked. And the wild trip through the paranormal that is Monsterland. Be part of the pod revolution. Visit pod617.com in pod. We trust. There is a certain amount of all of this that comes down to if it's not feeling right, you can't say what a feeling is. Right. You feel what a feeling is. And so if it's not feeling right, you need to respect the feeling and you need to be able to say, you know what? Right now I'm not feeling it. Let's stop. Mm-hmm. And let's, let's reconnect emotionally. And then at some other point, this will happen. Yeah. Right. Okay. And, and that's the thing is I think people get confused about... Um, when it comes to consent, there's this idea that it's a light switch. Yeah. And you either right. turn it on or turn it off. And in reality, the way that it works in practice, hopefully, is that, you know, let's say that you're with a partner and you decide you would like to try a thing that the two of you have never done together before. Mm-hmm. And there's sort of two ways to go about it. You can either stop and say, hey, Laura, we've never done X. Would you be willing to try it? Yeah. And Laura will either say, no, I would not, or yes, I would. I got this magazine. Yeah. I want to try this. Let's you know, try a number. Let's whatever. try a number, whatever. And, yeah. and you have that conversation in advance in which you say, okay, if you don't like it, tell me, yes. and we'll stop. Mm-hmm. Or you just kind of go for it and try it. Right. But then, and I'm not, I'm not bringing that up as like a, in direct opposition to having the conversation. I guess having the conversation is, is really the gold standard, but like, especially if it's long term and you know, the person, you know, their body language, you know, all these things, you might just like try something. You might like stick a hand or another body part where you don't (laughs) usually, but the, but the important part is if you do that and then your partner is like, Whoa, Whoa, what are you doing? I don't want that. Yeah. You stop. You know, when you're really looking at, what is consent? Consent is is to me. It's and ongoing. It, it's ongoing, and it's about relationship development. You can't just say this is an on off. I mean, if we're talking about a residence hall, there's a lot of things that'll distract somebody from feeling in the mood. Okay, you mean you may be getting on and it's getting crazy, and then all of a sudden the the fire alarm goes off. Well, that kills a mood better than that, anything. Yeah, and that <laughs> that is like you're not going to work your way through that. Okay, that is not how it works. And, you know, or the roommate showing up or, Mm. you know, something else might happen. It is about long term being able to build these relationships and being able to have an understanding of respect. There is nothing that's more sexy than communication. Okay, little dirty talk goes a long (laughs) way. (laughs) Or if it is not long term, if it is a one night thing, if you're hooking up, like, there still needs to be some communication. Yes. You need to be right. able to at least understand from one another, okay, I'm okay with this. I'm not okay with that. I want to do this. I don't really want to do that. Sure. That's that's like baseline stuff. And, um, and you know, one of the other things I think is important because we haven't talked about it, Beth, is that idea of like, I, and Dave alluded to it a little bit when he was talking, mm-hmm. people take, people are going to drink, they're going to do oh, drugs yes. and that sort of thing. You know, from your yeah. expertise and from your kind of conversation, what are some of the things parents could say to a kid around that? Because I, I get a lot of the, the, the answer a lot of parents put out there or the the rationale to a lot of parents is like if you do this you cannot can you cannot do this you can't right. drink and have sex so you can't this the the rules and the laws are a little bit variable in di- on different campuses and in different states but 
most of the time, the law does not say that a person can't consent if they've been drinking at all. Mm-hmm. What it says is they can't consent if they are incapacitated. Yes. And incapacitated isn't even intoxicated. It's beyond mm-hmm. that. It mm-hmm. is no sense of time and place. It is unconscious. Like it is things where, you know, if the person doesn't know their name and where they are, I would not try to have sex with them because they cannot consent with you. Um, And I think the thing is that, unfortunately, we've seen many times drinking, drug use, things like that being used to blame people Mm -hmm, who mm -hmm. become victims. Like, well, that I I full-on had a parent say to me in an orientation presentation after I showed a video that Mm -hmm. showed like an example. It was actually an example of bystander intervention. So showing all these times in a situation where friends and people in the bar and other things can kind of intervene and say, hey, hey, girl, you okay? Let's go home. Yeah. And this woman raised her hand and was like, well, I, that girl got drunk. So what did she expect to have happened to her? Right. And, and that happened in the year of our Lord Jesus Jones, 2017. Good yeah. God. Yeah. But, it, you know, and then, and then another parent in the crowd was like, well, you're wrong. You know, it was, it was yeah. a parent fight. It was interesting. But that was a fun one. That was a fun one. But there is unfortunately this, this notion still very strongly that like you as a victim, and again, usually women, although not always, but like you are responsible. The onus is on you not to drink, not to dress a certain way, not to go a certain place, not Mm -hmm. to like go out and fully enjoy your life. Lest someone rape you Mm -hmm. instead of the onus being, Hey, we all men, especially because again, they are the, that small group of men is doing most of the perpetrating, but like we all should be, treating other people appropriately, respecting boundaries, having respect for other people's bodily autonomy and not like going out and committing crimes all the time. So alcohol and drugs does make these situations tricky. It doesn't mean that like if I'm out and I have two beers and come home and then, you know, consent to sex that Mm -hmm. I couldn't. And, And I think the tricky thing, especially when you're talking about a hookup or some people who are not familiar with one another is you may not know the person's tolerance level. You sort of might not know, like they may appear pretty sober to you, but mm-hmm. you don't know. Right. Um, there's a phenomenon that happens that many of us have seen or even experienced called blacking out mm-hmm. when drinking, which is not passing out. Blacking out is the part of your brain that makes your short-term memory is depressed by the amount of alcohol you've had. So you're functioning, like you're walking and talking and doing stuff, but you won't remember any of it later. Right, right. I can't tell by looking at you that you are in a state of blackout. It's tricky. Yeah. There's tricky stuff. And I think that really, again, um, you know, if your first concern about a hookup or a sexual relationship is, oh God, am I going to get in trouble for this? Right. Maybe reconsider your whole view on that. But like, you know, if you're communicating and you're really getting the vibe off of the other person that they are unsure, slow it down and talk more. Yeah, you There's gotta nothing, slow your roll. You got to slow your roll. And, and as a parent, that is going to be important for you to be able to have these conversations with your kid going in. And we've talked about this before, about expectations, about mm-hmm. what kind of alcohol and drug use they have in college and, and what kind of expectations around what are, they, what are they experiencing sexually and what kind of person do they want to be? And, you know, I think that going back to my example at the very beginning of this, uh, of this episode about the institution I was working at and their philosophy around you know, advising parents that these things were happening to their child if the child was the victim of a sexual assault or a rape. Um, I go back to this idea of like, what's the spirit behind something? And I think the spirit behind this was that 
you know, when it was explained to me at the time, was that they were trying to make sure that the student was getting what they needed in terms of support. I think that was, it didn't manifest itself out in the proper way and it created a chilling effect and the students would not report these things. And the under the under-reporting of campus sexual assault, I think, mm-hmm. as, a, as a direct result of that. But if we go back to this idea of, of you know, what kind of message are you sending your child when you're sending them off to school? And that, you know, knowing the relationship that the student can have with the institution around making um, making them aware of incidents when they happen, should they happen, and hopefully they don't, but if they do happen, who do they go to? Um, I think that's a conversation you need to have with them, and uh, it's important. And some of you might, parents might be thinking, well, obviously, if my student were sexually assaulted, I would want to know. Why wouldn't the school call me? Right. Hopefully, your student is comfortable telling you. Right. Um, but part of the issue, part of the reason that we are sort of shuddering at the idea of that mm-hmm. is not that we don't think you, the parents, can be supportive and helpful in the situation. It's that someone who has experienced this has already had their choices taken away from them. Mm-hmm. And the notion of the college saying, well, you've said you're not ready to tell, maybe the, maybe the student is even like, I'm going to tell my mom and dad, I just, I like want a week. I want to process it. Yeah. And to have the college be like, nope, you don't get to decide is just yet another time that they're saying you don't have a choice. Yeah. Beth, do you know if it matters whether the student is a minor or not, whether there's an obligation to, for the school to call the parents? It would depend on how the school interprets FERPA, but no, mm-hmm. generally speaking, no, there's not. Right. Um, and most places now would not do this because it's, Again, all the reasons, just like not legally, but best practice wise, it's it's not a good it's not a good look. It's not a good way to support someone who's been through this. Um, But I do want to just kind of give a rundown now of what you can expect Mm -hmm. from your students' college um, and things that you and your students should look for. Yeah, if you're exploring these these resources on campus, and this is relates back again to the dear colleague letter that we talked about Mm -hmm. way earlier in the show. and that, sorry, I say way earlier because this this conversation is turning into a longer one than we normally have on our show, and mm-hmm. it feels like that was a long time ago. Yeah, <laughs> well, and I think one of the things that's really good about this too is that because of, as with anything that is a government uh, requirement, so if this was a, a government mandate, um, there is uh, it is online, and I'm about mm-hmm. to sneeze. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> Bless you. Uh, the studio is shaking. Okay, we're back. <laughs> we're back. So, so there's four. There's kind of four basics that mm-hmm. the school has to have, and you should be able to find these things on their website. And if you can't, um, you should ask some questions. Yeah, they <laughs> must because they're not in compliance. Then the, yeah. yes, and I don't mean ask questions like call up OCR and be like, no. go after this school. That's not. They're not gonna real quick because they're a little understood. That's a whole other That's story. A whole but, other story, but th- but it is time then to maybe call your student affairs folks or other folks on that campus and say, hey, my my kid is coming there in the fall, and I looked this up and didn't find this. Am yes. I not looking in the right place? Where is it? So here are the things. Number one, they've got to have a notice of non discrimination. So they have to have a policy that you can find on their website that explains what they define as sexual harassment and gender based discrimination. Mm-hmm. Um, such that everyone in their community, students, faculty, employees, visitors, mm-hmm. everybody on that campus understands which actions are not kosher yep. in this way. And and if you're trying to find these things, if you put into the search bar on their website um, notice of non-discrimination, it should take you 
right to that area. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're trying hard to find it and you're like looking under Title IX or you're looking under sexual assault or you're looking under what, and you can't get to the policy, a good nugget in terms of search engine would be notice of non-discrimination. And that's something that they should know, even if you find it eventually, but you have to search five different things, yeah. tell them that. Like, yeah. That's something they should understand. Because and that actually is a non that is not in compliance. Yeah. There's certain rules about how many clicks it takes <laughs> it to get to, to it. to find. It's it's down to that level of, of minutiae. Yes. Um, second thing, they must have at least one designated person on their campus who is known as the Title IX coordinator. Mm-hmm. That doesn't need to be their only job. Right. Um, often that person works, um, sometimes uh, schools, for example, will have two different ones. They'll have one for faculty and staff and they'll have one for students. And often the faculty and staff person is in the, HR in the human resources office. So they may have a job but in HR, but that's, the other part. Mm -hmm. Some schools will have multiple people. They'll have like the main Title IX coordinator is this person and then there are deputy Title IX coordinators like in athletics and in residence life and whatever. These are people who are designated as and they have received training such that if a student discloses to them that they have been um, the victim of a sexual assault or other gender-based violence or issue harassment that they have training to know how to respond to that student and how to direct them to the appropriate resources and where appropriate to initiate an investigation of that incident. Does someone in the student affairs office, specifically the vice president or the dean of students, is typically a a deputy at the very least Mm -hmm. in the Title IX process? I've been in that role and um, it is uh, also, in some cases, to back up the Title IX coordinator because there may be a time where the person might feel compromised because of some matter that they can't be seen as the objective uh, individual in a in an investigation. Which brings us to the third thing they have to have, which is clear grievance procedures. There has to be a clearly delineated process for what happens when a student comes to the Title IX coordinator Mm -hmm. or reports this on campus and says, this happened to me. So there needs to be a clear process for what happens to that student who is usually referred to as the complainant. Yes. And there needs to be a process for the respondent, which is the sort of official name policy-wise for the person that's Mm -hmm. being accused of something. Mm -hmm. There needs to be a process by which they each you know, have a chance to tell the story um, and by which they understand what the resources are available to them. Because there are resources available to respondents as well, mm-hmm. or there should be. Yes. Um, and that was part of the Dear Colleague letter was was sort of looking at the procedures that many colleges had in place. They were not evenly matched in terms of how they supported both of the people involved mm-hmm. or all the people involved, because sometimes there's more than one complainant or more than one respondent. Um, and they also were doing things that were really not great for complainants like allowing respondents to question complainants directly sitting in the same room as part of the process, which is really not appropriate. No, it's not appropriate. And and the other part of the process that they often try to do is limit the number of times the complainant has to actually speak out about what they're what they saw and what happened um and so there are going to be times in the process where there are going to be people even the other deputy title nine people won't know what's happening with a particular incident on campus um because they want to try to keep it private and they want to try to minimize the exposure um and the feeling of having to restate the incident time and time and time again, um, they want to try to control that. And and that's in the best interest of the process. Mm-hmm. And the, the fourth and final thing they must have is a prompt response to violence. And what this means is there are going to be situations where 
a student may go and say to the Title IX coordinator, you know, this thing happened to me, um, and they'll tell their story, and the Title IX coordinator will investigate or, or have someone investigate, and they'll figure out that, like, yes, something happened, but it's an isolated incident. It mm-hmm. was between um, students who already knew one another, and maybe they were even in a dating relationship and something happened, and blah, 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 that's it, and they respond to it appropriately. There are going to be other situations sometimes, and again, think back to when I was talking about Lisa and Miller and how their research found that a large majority of men committing these crimes are committing them repeatedly. So this comes up when a student comes in and says to the Title IX coordinator or the police on campus or whoever, hey, I was assaulted, it was this person, and they all look at one another and go, we've heard of that guy before. Yeah. Um, or if it was a student, a stranger if it was a situation which is rare which because is most rare. most assaults are actually committed by someone you know but it is it is a a crime that's committed by a stranger to the student who it seems like it might be a visitor from off campus and or there's physic a lot of physical violence involved mm-hmm. and there might be a situation where the folks hearing this the title nine folks the police whoever look at one another and say this is a danger to the whole campus community right so we need to respond differently we need to do what's known as a timely, timely notifi- warning timely yep. warning to the community to say and it, and it's not going to be specific about hey it was Laura who had this happen to her mm-hmm. it would be some kind of announcement to the campus that says we have had reports of multiple assaults this is generally some facts about where and when they happened yep. and you need to know that this has happened and if you have further information please report it yes um, most of the time uh, at least in my experience this doesn't happen because the most assaults don't fall under that kind mm-hmm. of situation they are mostly not um, the sort of thing where there is a danger to the community, mm-hmm. but when there is, it's the sort of thing that the campus is obligated to tell the community about. And it. I will say that because of my role in the past, being part of the decision as whether or not something falls under the timely warning um, rubric, and if it actually should be considered a timely warning, there's a lot of discussion that goes into that mm-hmm. um, in and amongst people who matter um, at the institution and in making that decision, whether it be law enforcement, um, the Title IX person, um, and that sort of thing. And so it, these things do not happen um, lightly. Um, and and uh, But also, I feel that one of the most important things about the entirety of all of the progress that has been made around campus sexual assault is that institutions institutions who are doing good work, and there are institutions doing good and great work in this area, don't treat this uh, flippantly. They don't treat it as something to cover up a matter um, and realize that a timely warning is absolutely very, very important to that very important piece of the Title IX process, which is addressing the campus climate. Mm -hmm. And timely warning doesn't just go around protection, it actually goes around climate and climate uh, fixing the climate on your campus and making sure people know what's going on. So we're going to put a bunch of resources in the show notes for this episode, both kind of some references for the things we've, you know, the stats we threw at you and some of the research we've been talking about, but also there are some really good resources out there about how to have a conversation about this very issue mm-hmm. with a student entering college that yes. we will link to. Yeah. Um, because this is a really important topic and it's not easy to talk about. It's not even easy for us to talk about. Yeah. Um, but it, it's necessary and something that, you know, we hope this will help you have that conversation. Absolutely. So thank you for joining us for this latest episode. This is uh a production of the Pod 617 uh, Studio. How did they get in touch with us, Beth? 
Uh, please tweet at us at TwinXLPod on Twitter or email us at TwinXLPod at gmail.com. We want your questions. We want your suggestions. Get in touch. If you like this podcast, share it with a friend. Subscribe. Subscribe. And thank you to David Yaz, our wonderful producer and participant in today's episode. My pleasure. Thanks, ladies. 